Hey everybody, it's Miles here from the Around the Craft Table team, and we just want to give you a little heads up before we start the show. This week we deal with some pretty heavy subject matter, including abortion and some religious discussion. If these are things that bother you, we just want to let you know and remind you that we have your back. Otherwise, enjoy the show! The best piece of advice I have for someone trying to succeed in the film industry or any creative space is... If you're doing what everyone else is doing, you're doing it wrong. Welcome to Around the Craft Table, a podcast by film students about movies, making movies, and other stuff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Around the Craft Table. And today we are going to be talking about our favorite shot from a movie, analyzing it, taking it apart, and who better to join me in this endeavor than my friends Miles? Hello. Will. Hey, how's it going? And special guest for this episode, our friend Sam. Hello. Hi. Hi. How is everybody doing today? Pretty good. I'm, I'm doing well. That's awesome. So yeah, so recently we all had to write an an essay assigned by our professor and he was like, write eight to what what was it? It was was uh, seven to ten pages. Seven to ten pages about one shot from a movie. Mm -hmm. So that shot can be any length from like, like two seconds to like, I don't know, minutes long. It depends on what your choice was, but... We're de- we definitely, um, I think everyone definitely picks some different variety of shots, and I think we're just going to talk about them today. So our first analysis of a shot from Nacho Libre yeah. uh, was done by Will. So, Will, do you want to talk about what shot you picked and tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. Before I get into that, I'll start with, start with like a quick synopsis for those who haven't seen the movie. It's about like a, a friar at a monastery who basically isn't getting enough money to get fresh ingredients to to cook meals for the um for the orphans who who live in this monastery and then after basically being pushed around a whole bunch he decides to take up wrestling which is like a childhood dream of his and wrestle in order to make money for these kids so he can like buy like fresh ingredients because so he can like make nicer food for them so basically like the movie goes on and on and on he's losing a bunch of matches but he's making all this money uh and then he becomes more and more focused on himself instead of the orphans he was originally fighting for and then he reaches a point where basically he realizes that he should be fighting for himself. He should be right fighting um, for these orphans and for others, which is basically kind of like a religious thing for him as well. Um, so instead of being selfish, he's being like selfless and then like sacrificing himself to help others. And only then could he potentially win. Um, and then basically it leads up to this big fight with him and the quote unquote uh, best wrestler in the city or, or the country or in the area at least. Um which is which is Ramses, and basically it leads up to this fight, um, where they, they're they're having like a back and forth. Um, Nacho's like he's it's it's kind of rough, but he's doing all right. Uh, and then uh, and then basically what happens is um, he's he's getting pounded pretty like he's he's getting wrecked by uh, by Ramses, um, and then reaches a point where he's pinned down, and then he looks off to his side, and then um, the one of the nuns from the orphanage that Nacho has feelings for, which is kind of like its own separate subplot. And, and then a bunch of the orphans have shown up to then to, to watch him and support him. And then that them showing up inspires him to basically um, overcome everything he was struggling with and then uh, defeat Ramses and eventually win. Um, 
win the match or whatever, and then becomes like a professional and makes a bunch of money. Um, the shot I chose uh, from this movie was in that final match between uh, Nacho and Ramses. So basically, there's a shot. I'm just going to pull it up right now so I can take a look. Uh, there's a shot uh, where Nacho's lying on the, the mat on, of the ring, and uh, Ramses is pushing his boot down uh, into Nacho's neck. And then uh, Nacho's like struggling with, with the boot. And then he he turns his head and looks off to the side. And then that's basically the entirety of the shot. Um, or directly, uh, immediately after this shot, um, we see uh, Sister Encarnacion, which is the nun I spoke of earlier. She shows up with the orphans. So that's what he's looking at. Um, so basically my argument that I made for my paper was um, that... Uh, Nacho um, is in this moment when he's being pinned out by Ramses is at absolute rock bottom um, in his life. And basically he's, he's tried really hard and he's gone all this way and like done all this work only for him to still fail. And then it's only through basically uh, the nun and the orphans who show up, um, which in my paper, I argue is like a representation of, of his beliefs Um only through that he's then inspired to basically overcome all the, all the obstacles in front of him, and then eventually uh, defeat Ramses, and then um, and then help the the orphans and everything um, by fighting for them. Uh, so there's a there's a couple different aspects I really look closely at uh, in in this paper, um, and then I'm assuming you guys would have as well because uh, it was it was part of the part of the assignment we did, um, but like the main things that I really focused on was uh, the cinematography and the composition as well as the uh, sound design and then uh, the production design. And then um, as well as like a couple of reasons why I find the shot to be um, extremely interesting. So uh, the main thing I was looking at was how uh, Ramses was pushing down from above into Nacho. And I, I referenced a book called uh, Reading Images, The Grammar of Visual Design by Gunther R. Kress and uh, Theo Van Leeuwen, where basically they argue that a frame or a picture or some kind of composition can be split um, horizontally um, and vertically as well. Uh, but in this case, I was only looking at the horizontal aspect um, into two different sections. Uh, there's the top, which is the ideal, and then the bottom, which is the real. Um, and then the authors argued that um, the ideal, uh, quote, tends to make some kind of emotive appeal and to show us what might be, end quote. Um, and then the real, quote, tends to be more informative and practical, showing us what is, end quote. So basically, um, in other words, uh, in this scene, Ramses is kind of like this ideal person, this ideal human, um, where Everyone wants to be him. Everyone wants to be like him. Uh, even Nacho at one point wanted to be like him and then strive to be him um, and be this famous person. And then uh, Nacho is kind of like the reality of the situation um, where he uh, or he's the reality that lots of people face where like they try and they try and they try and they get pushed down by these people who are um, ab like above them and then they're hindered by that. Um, and I think this shot is really effective in like kind of demonstrating um, the position Nacho is in, um, just based off of how Ramsey's like coming down from above and like pushing him down. 
um, in this specific shot. Obviously, in the end of the movie, it gets turned around, and then um, and then Nacho like overcomes everything, and then takes Ramses down. Uh, but I'll, I'll segue into uh, sound design as well. Sound design, um, basically, it's in this shot. There's not anything like super super fancy. Uh, what happened was they, they, they basically the sounds of the crowd kind of drowned out, so it helps you like focus a little bit more on um on what's going on in the scene uh or in the shot specifically um and then but more importantly is there's um there's a song that starts playing uh it's it's a song that's used a bunch of times throughout the film it's called um i believe it's called uh religious man it's by uh uh mr loco i believe is the name of the band um and basically that song is all about like uh like like faith, belief, like that kind of thing. All these things that are like instrumental to um, to Nacho and like his, like basically his uh, character and everything that he's about. Um, and then it starts playing at this moment where he's in this rock bottom position and it happens right as he turns his head and looks off into the distance where he sees, where he sees uh, Sister Incarnacion, who is once again like a representation of like his faith and his beliefs. So it's almost as if he's in this position where he's getting just pushed down it's he's at rock bottom everything's gone horribly wrong he's getting pushed down by people uh, that are supposedly better than him and that kind of stuff and then right at the last second when it was all about to go really really bad um basically his faith kind of like for him at least for his character um what he would view as like his faith kind of like swoops in and then gives him the inspiration to uh, overcome all of this and then uh basically eventually defeat uh ramses another big thing uh in this shot that I, I found very, very interesting was the production design and more specifically uh, the costuming is, is the biggest thing that I found to be really, really crucial in, in my paper when I was arguing my, my thesis. So the main thing as far as production design goes is going to be the costuming in this scene and more specifically uh, the fact that a Nacho is missing his mask. So I did some research into Lucha Libre uh, wrestling. I found uh, an article from, uh, the last name is Levi, uh, it's called uh, Sport and Melodrama, The Case of Mexican Professional Wrestling. Um, and basically she went into detail about uh, like the culture of Mexican wrestling and Lucha Libre and that kind of thing. And if, if it were 100% accurate, like the movie, if, if it were 100% accurate to the actual Lucha Libre wrestling, um, Ramses would have been disqualified for removing Nacho's mask. But in this case, for the sake of the film, uh, they just kept it going. Um, and for the sake of the stories but basically in the situation here because uh nacho is missing his mask um it's it's supposed to be very insulting very humiliating uh and basically it takes away his um takes away his uh persona in some way but yeah that's kind of what i was talking about in my paper so uh you guys got any questions about um about about uh about nacho libre i hope so I, I don't have a question, but I do have like a comment. Sure. Well, I just I find it very interesting that because this film's a comedy, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, it says it is on IMDb, and it, it like tonally like you would concur. Yeah, I would. <laughs> okay. Well, it just I find it interesting that um, people so often can look over comedy and think, oh, it's just supposed to 
it's just trying to be funny you know this film's just trying to be funny and like there's just these outrageous things happening but the fact that like you went in depth and looked for like the research and like what it might be based off of and that this is a true story and this stuff does actually happen and that this is a real thing especially like with wrestling there's like a weird kind of stigma around wrestling sometimes for some people they're like well it's really fake and like yeah some what are you talking about wrestling is 100 percent real what are you talking about (laughs) but but like even even just making a film about wrestling but then going that extra mile with all like the theatrics and then like also this is like specific mexican wrestling correct uh yeah lucha libre yeah so yeah so it's just a really specific thing and um the fact that there's that much nuance, like detail, especially with the mask and everything, and the and 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 all that is is really interesting to me. And that that you can tell, like the filmmakers really, like did their job in making sure that they were as accurate as they could be, while still kind of having those thematic things, like him losing his mask, him losing his identity, those kind of those kind of things connecting together. I don't know. No, I, I agree. Cool. I think uh, I I think you're right in saying that like comedy movies can get overlooked. Um, mm-hmm. Because like it's not it's not like just because you're making a comedy movie it throws every single aspect of filmmaking out the window. Um, you can still have a really really cool shot in a comedy movie, um, and it can add a lot to the story. Because like at the end of the day, having a comedy movie you're still you're still telling a story. It's not like you're magically not telling a story like, that wouldn't make any sense. Um, and you can still tell your comedy story in a bunch of interesting ways and you can have a cool shot. And like even after this, after this specific shot and scene um, or, or later in the scene, rather, there's another really, really cool shot um, that I wish I had pulled up before, uh, but I don't have it in front of me right now. Where basically um, it's after um, Nacho kind of rallies and then he climbs up on like the one of the ring or the one of the corners of the ring. Because he's, he's throwing ramps out of the arena. He climbs up on one of the corners and then basically he stands on top of it and puts his arm up um, and then jumps off. And it's just the way it's framed and where the lights are and everything. It's very it's very angelic. And also the music kind of hits like a climax where um, where it's starting to get like super intense. And then um, and then it, it's just the way it's timed and everything. It's also a really, really cool shot. Um, I'll see if I can find it later. And that we'll, we can throw in the show notes. Um, and everything uh totally and any art articles that are mentioned we will try and find and throw in the show notes um just a quick question here will um sure. what you've described is a comedy that is shot not shot the way you would expect comedy to be shot you know that is simple master over over not a lot of um intrigue in the in the shot selection but based on the still frame that you've posted and um your description how would you say it's shot would you consider it to be conventional of comedy or does it sort of do things a little uh differently oh i, I think it would definitely do things differently um because i know exactly what you mean by like oh let's get a master and then like this close-up and that close-up very like cut and dry because it's all about um, yeah it's all about what's the oh let's just make it funny it doesn't have to like look super fancy or um, but in this case here, the joke. exactly, exactly. Um, but in this, they have a lot of shots like this, and they take, um, they they take, they definitely take some liberties, and they they uh, they kind of do what makes sense and what looks really really cool, like a lot of the time. Um, and uh, if if I already said the, the the part where he climbs up on the ring post on the side, and then that's a good shot. But there's also one. Uh, earlier where basically he's like walking away from the monastery because he's kind of getting kicked out 
um and he puts on his mask because this is right after he's like said um oh um i'm gonna fight for the orphans like win from whatever to everyone in the monastery um and as he walked away he like puts on his mask and i think i think it goes slow-mo for like a little bit but it looks really really cool um and again the music fits perfectly with it um but it's they the way they 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 filmed it 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 tells the story very very well and it's not always like you would say traditional or conventional i think was the word you used um for filming they 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 did they like sure there's always the conventional back and forth but they if they thought a shot would be able to tell the story better than something conventional then i think 100 percent they went through with it nice which i think might be something that a lot of comedy films might be missing um Mm -hmm. because i feel like if more comedy films had these i guess let quote unquote less conventional shots then maybe people wouldn't really knock on them so much. Well, thanks so much, Will. Um, hey, you no actually uh, impressed me with your amount of details. I am not going to be... Um, my explanation will not be as long and thought through <laughs> okay. of my uh, chosen shot, which is from Nocturnal Animals, uh, directed by Tom Ford. Um, so basically, my shot is kind of the major climax of the film. If you don't want spoilers for Nocturnal Animals, um, just skip to uh, later in the podcast. We'll have a timestamp. Yeah, when we move on to the next one, because I don't want to like ruin it for anybody, but this will involve major spoilers um, from the film. But, okay, so just so you guys have a bit of background on the movie, I know I talked about this film when we did our first episode, which is the quote-unquote lost episode now um however i will recap for those who weren't present during the recording <laughs> um so nocturnal animals is about this woman susan um and played by amy adams and she's like an art curator at this art gallery and she's like really bored with her life and like her husband's cheating on her and like she she doesn't really know about it but she knows about it you know she receives a novel uh like a manuscript proof in the mail uh, from her ex-husband who's written a book called Nocturnal Animals and then she remarks about how he used to call her that and it's dedicated to her and he leaves her a note saying that he wants her to read it and throughout the film she kind of becomes enthralled with this uh, tale he's written which is a which is a very dark and twisted uh, story about a man who loses his wife and daughter um, in a roadside encounter um, and uh, the character in the book that she's reading um, starts sorts of strings off into its own na- narrative during the film. So there's uh, the present day narrative of Amy Adams reading the novel, the novel itself, and then flashbacks with her and her ex-husband and kind of her realizing that she might still have feelings for him and that she might have thrown away a good thing um, in remembering him fondly uh, through this very gruesome story. And in the story, um, the main character, Tony, who's also played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays uh, the the ex-husband as well. Um, So it's kind of neat that they kind of mirror each other and she's imagining him as the protagonist because, I mean, she would, (laughs) because it's a story about him. And um, he, uh, in the movie, he gets, uh, uh, in the the story within the movie, he gets uh, pushed to the side of the road by these like country hicks and Long story short, they end up capturing his wife and daughter, and he's left alone with this other guy. Um, and the whole story is kind of this theme of everyone always calling uh, Tony 
and Edward, who is the real guy, um, weak. And this word weakness and weak is thrown around a lot, kind of like shoves him down. Um, and throughout the film, Amy Adams' character keeps alluding to this horrible thing that she did to Edward. And that's why, you know, they 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 didn't work out. That's That was the, like the last straw and everything. And so my shot is from the climax of the movie um, where you find out what that thing was, which is um, Amy Adams' uh, character uh, aborted Edward's child. So there's been a lot of uh, criticism on the film that, um, and I wrote about this a bit in my essay too, about how there are these... uh, quote-unquote misogynist undertones in the movie and you know things are you know very uh told from the male perspective but it really is told from her perspective in a way and I think that the fact that she regrets it isn't an anti-abortion movie that I was trying to make that point in my essay too because a lot of people have been talking really bad about it and that it made them uncomfortable and things and I'm not trying to discount their you know, uncomfortable feelings, but I don't really think that that was the intention of the film to tell a film that was anti-abortion. I think (laughs) it's talking more about um, lack of communication and just two lovers going astray and, and wanting to be together, but not really knowing how, especially considering that there's external forces that act on love, Um, like family and, you know, situation, timing, all those things. But in this particular shot, in the right-hand side of frame, and the shots will be linked in the uh, the description of the podcast, but the in the right-hand side of frame is the back of the car that uh, Amy Adams and the man that she will uh, later marry, Hutton, are sitting in. They're both academics. They're both in like their master's degree uh, stage, and she's met him in lectures, and she's like confided in him about this abortion, and she hasn't told Edward, her husband. So in the rearview mirror of uh, the car, you see just the lips of Hutton. And then you see Edward, who's just came to the parking lot outside of the abortion clinic. And he's looking at her. And you see this shot for like three seconds. And then you don't see any more of Edward's reaction to this event at all. That is it. (laughs) Wow. So I found that super interesting because it's about his heartbreak and yet we really don't see him that much at all. But instead, I chose to kind of look at the two scenes that sit on either side of the sequence. So this sequence is like why he hurts and why he felt betrayed. One, she never confided in him about her choice because it was both of their kid. Um, He was never a part of that. And two, like, you know, she left him. So the the family that he could have had, the life he could have had was kind of stripped away from him in like an instant without him even really knowing. And so he, that caused him to write this novel. And so in the novel, um, there's two scenes that tail end each end of this, this, uh, this flashback scene that we're talking about in the rain. The first one that happens right before it is Tony, also played by Jake Gyllenhaal, basically book book edward (laughs) is um holding hostage the two men that raped and killed his wife and daughter with a detective and the detective has cancer and he's like dying but he's still trying to help tony like 
get revenge for what these men did to his family. And he lets them go um, by accident because he's not strong enough as a person to like keep them back. And then as they run out of the cabin where they're holding them at the, this edge of this, uh, it looks like New Mexico in the, or I think it's Texas actually, but it's like a very kind of deserty countryside. They run out of this cabin and the detective shoots one of them in the heart and he falls to the ground. And then this scene happens. And then it cuts right to this scene in the car um, right outside of the abortion clinic where Edward realizes that uh, Susan has aborted their child. And then right after this, um, you just see Tony in the book starts to cry. And the detective says, you realize I had to kill him. And then he just said, and then he just shouts and he's just like, no, I'm fucking glad that you killed him. I want him dead. And he just starts screaming and he just keeps stuttering. I should have stopped it. I should have stopped it. And then that sequence is over. And it's like, oh, the juxtaposition is just so interesting. And so I wrote about that and I wrote about revenge um, and, you know, how the sound during the rain scene just completely cuts out and then comes back in at the end. Um, all you hear is the rain. You don't hear any music. You don't hear any like dialogue, really. There's a lot more I can talk about, but that's like basically the shot. Um, so I, I didn't really talk about the shot super extensively, but I talked about the shot context and okay. the choice of this one shot versus any other shot. Like, why was this shot what we chose? Um yeah, if you guys can ask me questions, I'm gonna kind of skim through this my is, uh, essay and see if I can like <laughs> come up with anything. <laughs> you said this is uh, yeah, it's, it's heavy. Yeah, it's like <laughs> um, it's really dark. <laughs> uh, this is this is you said this is the climax of the movie, right? Like, so it's like right near the end. Yeah, this is literally right before like the end of the film. Like, this is uh probably 15 minutes before the film ends. Okay yeah. how how does the how does the movie end? I'm curious. I've not seen it, so I, I'm curious. Spoiler yeah. warning. Well, this has been spoiler running this whole time. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, yeah, so uh, Tony, so, okay, so in the book part, Tony goes to, um, so he let the two guys run away, right? And one got yeah. shot outside the, the, the cabin. And then he and the detective split up and go to two different places to try and, like, stop the, uh, the, the second guy that got away. Tony ends up confronting mm-hmm. him and... Um, in, in in the same cabin where apparently his his family was killed, uh, uh, and then he's like confronting the guy and the 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 criminal who he's like uh, facing off with in the climax of the movie is played by Aaron Taylor Johnson. Very rivetingly, like I hated the person that he was in the movie, and that's so good because I, I I love Aaron Taylor Johnson. I think he's a really great actor. But he, like, it did not seem like him. It was, like, somebody else, you know? Like, it was, like, such an interesting performance. It's, it's fucked, guys. You have to watch this movie. <laughs> unless, unless you're really, like, bothered by some of the themes, then, you know, that's all good. But, um, he ends up shooting, uh, the guy in the end. He, like, kind of, um, confronts his weakness. Um, but right after he shoots him, the Aaron Taylor Johnson's character like whacks him with a machete in the eye and then he wakes up the morning after and he can't really see out of one side of his eye and he crawls out into the desert 
and he just starts shouting because he's like his life is kind of over now like he's lost everything and he finally got revenge um and in his like kind of like blind sort of like disoriented state he ends up accidentally shooting himself when he like trips and falls and that's it and then cut back to present day amy adams is like connecting with her ex-husband again she's like i really want to go for dinner um to talk about your book and he's like where and when and then you see her getting ready and she's in this big long green dress which is like such a you know it's it's it alludes so much like jealousy that she has for so many other people that are like happy because she's so unhappy and her character's like so cynical and like green green with envy yeah just kind of ugh, it's like yeah <laughs> yeah and she goes to this restaurant and it's like the longest sequence ever of her waiting and waiting and waiting and in the end all you see is her eye and then her lip quiver and then the credits roll and she's been stood up and she's miserable and alone and that is it oh my god so they oh my god everyone <laughs> kind of died Hey everybody, it's Miles. You've reached the halfway point of the show. We've dealt with a lot of heavy content this last 10 or 15 minutes. We're gonna take a quick break, play some nice lo-fi hip-hop, give you a chance to decompress, and we'll come back with the tail end of Miranda's discussion, followed by mine and Sam's. We'll see you on the other side. the uh wonderful quote-unquote random questions with um uh, with all of these shots that are doing things again going back to the idea of convention as i touched on with um nacho there's so much 
taking that the abortion sequence, for instance, when he when or when he's, I believe it was the abortion sequence where they're sitting outside the parking lot and all you don't see Jake Gyllenhaal's reaction. Um, how do you feel that that uh, played? Or would have played, I suppose, had it been done in the conventional manner, you know, to watch Jake uh, react all the way through it versus the way Tom Ford chose to shoot it. Well, like, I, I in my essay, I sort of justify, like, the reason why this shot is so brief and framed like this is because there's this disjointed separation between them. And there's this man who's, like, wedged in the center of it all that's separating him from being able to really reconcile with her um, because he's ever present in that mirror. You see his like face and he's like, he's not taking up a little bit of the frame. He's taking up a lot of the frame, like the, the guy's lips in the rear view mirror. Um, and even Amy Adams head is like cutting off part of uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in, in that shot. And you know, he's in, he's so small in this shot. And I think that my essay, like I tried to justify the reason why this shot was used um, as a way to communicate the distance and then showing uh, the book character, Tony, also played by Jake Gyllenhaal, his reaction to, you know, killing a man and feeling glad and, and, and screaming that he's glad and, and, and just finally feeling all those emotions of having lost everything um i don't know it's like right after he finds out like in the book uh part of the movie right after he finds out that he he you know his wife and daughter have been found dead um he doesn't really like cry a lot until that point he's sort of numb to everything but i think once he finally kills one of the guys responsible it's like he finally starts to like cripple under everything and just let it all out and i think it was a good choice to have that directly following the abortion sequence because it really just showed the pain that i think you know edward that character who you know um amy adams character did betray like he's he's writing about that feeling in the book and and the character shows that so i don't think you needed anything else in this particular shot but i don't know it was an interesting choice i liked it for the uh like you said, there's like three different aspects, right? There's like the, there's like real time and then like the book mm-hmm. and then flashbacks, right? Yeah. So or, in a way too, um, so Amy Adams is reading the book scenes as this is happening. So reading the book scene of him finally getting revenge for killing, for the, for the death of his wife and daughter, she thinks of this memory. So she's remembering that time that she did this to him while... Oh, and that that adds just so much more to that. Yeah. Okay, I see. Um, Yeah. So I'm assuming that, like, in the movie... uh, like it's 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 clear like what's what like what's a flashback and like what's part of the book right like do they style them differently uh somewhat like they, like, they all right? flow together really well but they do have different like a slightly different color grades that's yeah so oh, you okay. can kind of that's kind of what i figured you can kind of tell what's what also like their costuming and like in the flashbacks like amy adams character does look younger versus like her present day self like she wears a lot of like tacky makeup in present day to like try and compensate for how fake her life is <laughs> <laughs> that's like literally the reason the director included that 
he's so matter of fact too and he knows exactly what he wanted with the movie so when he talks about it it's like he's like this is a cautionary tale about about um giving up you know something that something that you want because you don't think you're worth it or giving up something that is working because of external forces and to not give up on love that's like literally why he made the story but it's also based on a book that's basically the exact same but that's why he chose to adapt it because he thought it was what's the do you know what the name of the book is yeah it's called tony and susan by austin wright it was in 1993 i also sourced it in my essay as like a source i i I compared some of the plots between the two they're very similar but there's some differences um some so what you're saying is this this movie is a good message but it's not for the whole family no definitely not i have not watched it with my family i've watched it with uh friends before (laughs) um uh (laughs) fellow tortured artist friends and we're all like yes (laughs) i feel this so hard (laughs) Tom Ford um, is a fashion designer as well, so the idea that like he would be so much more visually conscious than most directors—yes, not to, not to you know crap on some of the other big names in Hollywood, but like there's just that immediate sense of like this guy, like you said, Miranda, knows exactly what he wants and knows exactly how he's gonna get it, or at least if not get it communicate it to the team in front of him and behind him so that he can get it yeah some impressive things i thought of was uh what that i noticed is um that i really uh appreciate that he included in the film was uh the car that uh ray aaron taylor johnson's character drives uh when he gets pulled over the car that they take his family away in the last moment he sees them alive is the same car that sits on the street right outside of one flashback that Edward and Susan have a fight outside of a party at the same car he sees there. So he wrote it in the book. And then later uh, in the, in the movie, you see a flashback where uh, Susan is like rejecting one of Edward's story ideas. And she's like, I don't, I don't like this. It's too much of you in it. And then um, she's sitting on a red couch. And then later in the film, when he finds his wife and daughter, they're dead and displayed in like this beautiful, like shape on a big red couch. And so it's just a really interesting kind of like he he really thought that stuff through. So anyways, that's that's my movie <laughs> that I chose to write on. I'm really interested to see it. Actually, uh, you should, you should watch pages, it. I have it on uh, DVD. How many pages was your paper? Because I feel like you just uh, brought out like a master's thesis and just this just. Like like I feel I feel like you could have like written like a master thesis like based off of this. Yeah, it's only seven pages. So I didn't I Did I you... didn't talk about a lot. Um I mean I mostly just talked about the actual shot itself. Like I'm talking more about the movie in in re- relative to the shot right now, but like I I talked right. mostly about the shot and then I talked about the the one scene before and the one scene following. Kind of the context of it. But Okay. Yeah. Nice. <sighs> yeah. All right. Well, do, do you guys have any more questions? Or... I'm good. No, I, I, yeah, I'm good. Okay, awesome. That was uh, an yeah. interesting conversation. Thanks. Yeah. All right. So, last but not least, Sam, you wrote uh, about a shot from uh, Crouching Tiger. Yeah, Crouching Tiger, yeah. Hidden Dragon. Want to um, tell us a bit about it? Yes, I will do my best to explain it. All right, here goes. So, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, well, it's based off of a book 
uh, I believe it's a five-part series called the Iron Crane Iron Pentology, and yeah, it's based on the book in the series that has the exact same name. And basically, I didn't really look into this while I was researching it, but um, the gist is that um, the book basically follows a f- a family of uh, martial artists, and it follows them through the generations. Um, from what I understand, uh, the movie does follow the book pretty closely and it does kind of take some plot points from the other books as well. So um, I guess the story, um, just a heads up for those of you listening, um, I'm not Chinese, but I will do my best to pronounce their names correctly. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the story is basically about these two former warriors, um, Shulian, who is played by Michelle Yeoh, and then Li Mubai, who is played by Chao Yun-fat. And they are tasked with um, sending over this legendary sword called the Green Destiny. The sword originally belonged to Shulian's uh, late fiancé, but then they're giving it off to this one guy for safekeepings. But... Lo and behold, once they send the sword over to this guy, it gets stolen. And I guess I can I can go ahead with spoilers. Uh, the sword is stolen by a young girl named uh, Jin Yu, who is played by Zhang Ji. Um, and the reason why she decides to steal the sword is because um, she's a Manchurian noble. So she is fated to marry to a rich family. Um, heighten her family's status and that's something that she doesn't want. She's actually been practicing martial arts for a couple years now under the care of her mistress who is also this assassin named Jade Fox. Um, and yeah, she doesn't want any of that life where she has to like marry a guy and then disappear from the rest of the world and just live as like a regular housewife. She wants to go on adventures. She wants to you know, she wants to like go out and live Robin Hood-esque, fighting off bad guys kind of thing. So that's why she decides to steal the Green Destiny. And basically, the film just follows um, Shulian and Mubai as they try to retrieve the Green Destiny from Jin as she like goes about running away from them. And in that, she basically has a coming-of-age story where she... Um, where she discovers that she doesn't necessarily have to follow what her parents think. And yeah, she eventually realizes this and then she falls off of a mountain, which sounds kind of weird, but if you look at it from a religious perspective, it makes a lot more sense. Um, the shot that I chose, uh, it happens about 20 minutes before the movie ends. And at this point... Uh, Jade Fox, her ex-mentor, has poisoned her, unbeknownst to Jun. So what happens is, um, Mubai, he throws the green destiny into the ocean, into a river, and then Jun goes in after it, and she ends up almost drowning. Jade Fox finds her, takes her into this cave, and then she, she thinks, Jun thinks that Jade is, um, Jade Fox is nursing her back to health, but she later realizes that she's been poisoned. She's on the brink of death. She wakes up and then she, in this cave that she's in, she basically drags herself 
to underneath a hole in the cave where there's moonlight and there's rain coming through. And then she walks to it, falls to her knees underneath and starts to drink the rainwater because she feels that that's probably the only place where she can get fresh water. And uh, yeah, I guess the reason why I chose reason why I chose the shot is because I was originally doing I was originally researching this film for another class I was in East Asian martial arts and I was using it to compare the martial arts in this film to or it's another film. I remember seeing this shot and then thinking to myself, "Oh my god. I feel like it just sums up the entire film just because everything up until this point has been like action filled, full of color." dialogue so many things happening at once and then you get this moment of like silence it's just the only thing that you hear is Jen splashing through the water and the sound of the rain and then that's pretty much it and it's probably one of the longest sh- shots in the film and just even that in itself I wasn't even analyzing it at the time I thought this is this is the shot this is the shot in the film and this is what I'm gonna write my essay on so yeah wow yeah I really this shot is so beautiful right Oh, it's, I love the colors and like how you have that the the firelight on the left and then the moonlight on the right. It's like so pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess another thing I should add is that um, I was reading an interview with the cinematographer Peter Powell, who won an Oscar for this film. He said that um, because this, they wanted to make this film very similar to uh, Wuxia genre of novels so like martial arts genre novels basically set in ancient china is that they wanted to make the pictures i sorry make the movie look like or emulate a traditional chinese watercolor paintings but obviously because it can't be vertical they tried to emulate that using a lot of negative space and they made sure to have low contrast just so that everything kind of looks like a painting nothing really sticks out um, as you can kind of see here, Jun isn't really like, obviously, you know that she's the focus of the the shot just because she's the only one technically moving. But if you just kind of look at this one frame, she kind of, for lack of a word, she kind of blends in almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I can see that. Um, now that you actually, you pointed out though, like I, I have it, I've opened mm-hmm. it up um like the, the photo so it's a bit larger um and it uh it does look like a painting mm-hmm. like in a lot of ways um every and like just within the shot itself everything really blends together well um as in like whenever i look at a painting um not that i do that really often but for when i think about a painting a lot of the time it is very similar color schemes. Everything blends together well, nicely. Uh, there's not like a ton of contrast. And I think that like, if if you put this on a wall um, at like a higher resolution or something like that, then someone could even maybe mistake it for painting just because of how yeah. it looks. Yeah. Um, I, thought, but I think I, that's I think that's really, really cool. I also really like how this symmetry isn't something you notice at first, but as you look at it, you pick out all like the distinct parts like um uh, sorry i forget the name of the character but the the character is um like mirroring that that stone wall that's 
that's crumbled. Yeah, yeah. And then you have uh, like the archway and those uh, barrels in the left, and then just those distant little piled rocks or sacks or something on on the right. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have things to look at on either side but they're not like it's not like Wes Anderson symmetry or anything like that but it's like you it's it feels like a very balanced well thought through frame and I just I admire that about it and also I don't know if it's like I guess it might be spoilers to say but like does this character die following the shot no actually the thing that I found really interesting about it is because it's a very um it's a very religious film um I kind of related it kind of back to religion because uh towards the end of the film it's not technically like she dies it's more that she's enlightened so um enlightened not in the sense that she becomes reborn and then she goes off to heaven kind of thing it's more like a kind of buddhist slash taoist kind of way of being coming enlightened you don't actually ascend as in go to heaven you just kind of have this sense of knowing your place in the universe so that's kind of what's happening to her so she's looking up she doesn't and i almost i I remember saying in my essay something how like she's looking up she's kind of it's almost like she's she goes down on her knees after this she's kind of like begging like the heavens like take me away i've i've done so much and i've messed up so much already just take me away already but then it's kind of like well the heavens already kind of being the answer they're kind of rejuvenating her because she's drinking the water from the rain that's coming from quote unquote the heaven right and then she's drinking right and then it's kind of like oh well the heaven's kind of giving her the answer you know you don't necessarily have to ascend you're kind of already here you just have to like tap into the fact that you are part of the bigger picture you just need to realize it so in a way it's not just like it's not like like you're looking at the big picture as in she's insignificant but it's also at the same time she's understanding that she is part of the big picture she it's not just about her kind of thing you can also like maybe pull in um maybe i'm off track a little bit but like also how like i'm, I'm assuming she goes from left to right yeah. correct like she's in like that yeah so she's like in an enclosed area and there's like the firelight um and then she goes to a more open area and then like you said like the light coming down from above mm-hmm. um yeah it's i never really looked at it that way but it is a, it seems to be a very spiritual yeah. shot and it can be taken like a lot of ways um and i i yeah that definitely that definitely adds to it as well like i i haven't uh, i haven't seen the movie um and then and then right in the middle now that i look at it there's that there's that ridge i can't tell exactly what it is um i think it's it's like the edge of a of a building like splits the frame basically right down oh, the middle right um with the 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 wall there mm-hmm. i think like that the black thing with like the window just beside it um splits right down in the middle too which i think is really really cool so um in some ways it could also be if she goes from like left to right it could be like she's crossing over yeah, even yeah um you can look at it that way yeah Man, it's, yeah, yeah it's, wow. um it's <laughs> really cool <laughs> wow this is wow yeah 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 I was like, Man, yeah, exactly. This is why I got That's a religion degree, guys. Symbolism in the movie. <laughs> yes. How has this not happened before? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, anybody else have anything to say regarding the shot? Um, I was just thinking about uh, Miranda. I think was was it you that mentioned the West a- the the it not quite being a Wes Anderson sort of framing. Um, 
Yeah, symmetry, but not yeah. like not like symmetry in the exact form. Just it, symmetrical it reminds me and a pleasing. A little bit of uh, a, a little bit emphasis of Kubrick's symmetrical framing, where he, like Anderson, would often have everything shotgun down the middle. But when he didn't, it was often just a character that was sort of center frame. And while the character's not quite center frame in the shot, um. I can't help but just be immediately drawn to to her in spite of everything else around it. There's, um, I know obviously that's the intention, but with the frame being the way it is, the initial, um, my initial reaction was to look at everything left-hand side and sort of sit there, and then I kind of wandered over um, towards where the character was, and I just, I just like how um, they don't force you to look anywhere it's, yeah. whereas most movies will sort of go look here see this then see that this sort of just gives you uh, a painting and says find what you want to find when you want to find it and I really like that how long is this shot held uh it's probably only a few seconds like under 30 seconds but it's probably okay, it's wow. most likely one of the longest shots or at least it feels like it Okay. Yeah. That's 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 good because I feel like a lot can happen in a shot like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All wow. right. <laughs> um, wow. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna wrap it up there. Um. So yeah, we. I guess we can just talk for like five minutes about why this process is valuable. Cause I. I feel like that that's kind of the purpose of doing it. Yeah. Is to kind of break break the scenes. <laughs> that's the purpose. So yeah. So I just now that we're at the, <laughs> so, so now that we're at the end of the podcast, let's tell you why. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now that you've sat through this it's whole hour of us the beginning. <laughs> talking about all these minute details, why? Um, yeah. So anyone else want to explain? Why? I'll take I'll take a I'll take a run at it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. Yeah, go ahead, Miles. It's all good. Uh, I'm just being a, a dumb host. Um, I, from my perspective, it's important because it teaches me and um S- stuff. Yeah, it teaches me stuff, and like <laughs> it teaches me that just because I, as the director, am not putting, you know, uh. I'll use Roger Rabbit because that was my frame. Just because I'm not necessarily putting Roger Rabbit in the center of the frame or just because I am necessarily putting him in the center of the frame doesn't mean that he is, because he is the center of frame, the most important thing going on. It it reminds me, um, both as a filmmaker and an audience member, audience member, I should say, <laughs> to take in the entirety of the shot that's put in front of me and see what I can pick up about the characters in it and the shot itself and what that might say about the rest of the movie as I watch it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I guess for for me as well, I guess... Well, I'll, I'll just explain it then. Um, so my conclusion towards the end of my essay was that um, this is kind of a shot about enlightenment or like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is about like becoming enlightened, like realizing who you are kind of thing. And I was thinking maybe 
well, perhaps this is kind of like Ang Lee's way of teaching the Western audiences who aren't really familiar with Chinese religion, like, this is how you become enlightened. You know, you don't actually just go like forward, like, I mean, you don't ascend, you're just kind of going forward kind of thing. So, you know, maybe it's just um, the director's way of kind of, um, I don't know how to say it. Uh, it's kind of the director's way of like teaching the Western audience. Like, like, a, uh, like just highlighting um, those values in a way that's kind of more accessible than yeah yeah that's what i was preaching it i guess yeah yeah so then like you know maybe the chinese audience audience gets it but then maybe ang lee is kind of like saying like hey for the western audience maybe i just have to show it visually kind of thing so it's an accessibility thing as well totally okay that's what i was thinking Mm -hmm. well that's really cool i definitely get that from the shot Mm -hmm. the reason why i i found uh this particular task so interesting is because uh, as a director and as like a writer as well um, deciding what to include in your frame and what to exclude in your frame is really important um, and how you're going to tell your story like right right as you make the shot list type thing kind of getting getting to know your story and you know putting your unique voice to it like in terms of my shot I think if if someone else had directed that moment would be completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, oh, yeah, I guess just because we're talking about Wes Anderson for a second back there, if Wes Anderson had directed Nocturnal Animals, I don't think it would be the same movie. <laughs> it it would be kind of humorous in a way, but still dealing with dark themes in a way that you really feel them, but you also laugh at parts. But this film is just so depressing and 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 upsetting in so many ways, but also really interesting and and heartfelt and explores a lot of like dark darkness but also a lot of light uh and love but yeah i don't know this i don't know from the very moment i watched this film it touched me in so many ways and i i i I cried but i was also like i also wanted to watch it over and over again i think i've seen it like eight times now wow um just because i i really like it (laughs) it's really good um right from the opening sequence of the film and i know you people that watch nocturnal animals know what i'm talking about but that opening credit sequence man you are in for a treat you're in for a treat all right yeah that is all did uh (laughs) just i'm just curious miranda having seen the Mm. film eight times you have did doing this paper um shift your perspective on the movie at all and not not i don't necessarily mean in the political context but just as a filmmaker did it shift uh, your perspective on viewings of the movie? As a filmmaker, no. Politically, actually, yes. I won't go into too much depth with it, but while researching a lot of sources for the film, I, I did find a lot of controversies around like the release of it about like because it came out in in uh, twenty seventeen, so it's a it's a relatively new film, um, and. Uh, there was some some stuff like I was talking earlier. I mentioned like the misogynist, uh, like the potential misogynist outlook that the film portrays, or um, some of the anti-abortion fil- uh, themes that might be uh, embedded within the narrative. But like when I watched it, and and being a woman and being surrounded by other women that were watching it with me, none of us really walked away with that with that idea. 
Um, and I actually had a conversation last night with a woman about this film as well. And she also didn't come away with that idea. She just came away with the idea that this was just a story and it was about, you know, those things. Um, but I don't think, it, I don't know. I mean, you guys watch the film and decide for yourselves. I, I'm not going to put down anybody with that view. And definitely if you're uncomfortable watching this movie, like I, I'm not trying to discredit that at all. I think that that's totally fair takeaway from it, but it's like, personally like I don't get that impression and this film like kind of communicated a huge message about like unfulfillment loss and like just yeah unfulfillment with success and just how empty success can feel especially when you're lacking those important to you I think that's what it's about so maybe you uh maybe it's also because like you're looking at it from like the perspective of of a filmmaker as well so maybe you can pick up on like different nuances that maybe not necessarily everyone else will pick up on which is why you don't necessarily look at it the way these people are seeing. that's true and yeah i definitely think that i come from like um perhaps a more not not well perhaps a different differently educated outlook i guess a more aware outlook perhaps yeah i don't want to say i don't want to say more educated or more aware but just differently educated and differently aware okay Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have a deeper understanding of like what goes into what goes into the shot, so like you can you can you can look at it and then like you can see like oh I based off of how this is filmed I really don't think it's mm-hmm. portraying this message because I can like grab this grab this grab this and be like oh it's it's really trying to say this which is kind of like the purpose of this paper yeah. anyways is like what is the shot doing and I'm, and I'm not gonna say this film illustrates anything perfect because the human being isn't perfect what oh oh all right that's it that is all podcast is over i'm leaving i'm done (laughs) i'm so tired guys falling apart inside and outside me too all right anybody else (laughs) um i'm sure i had a thought and then right after we stop recording i'll remember what it was Will, why do you feel like it's important to talk about these themes? Taking movies um, apart and stuff. Oh, that's what I was going to talk there about. There you go. <laughs> um, um, uh, I think it's important because um, I think what people lose when watching movies a lot of the time is that it's art, right? It's I, I feel like that sometimes gets lost in... Um, in translation or or when the movie's being made uh because people like like if like let's take let's i don't know take like a marvel movie for example like take like the avengers or something i haven't i haven't seen the avengers uh full disclaimer um or disclosure or whatever uh but i mean if someone goes to go see the avengers like i i don't think they're going to go see it for uh it's cinematography or it's, or it's sound design or how it's put together or like these little tiny details that, you know, somebody spent a really long time perfecting to make sure it looked really, really good with their gargantuan budgets to make sure everything, every single piece is just awesome. People are going to go see it because it's, because it's like, it's a, it's a superhero movie and it's, it's just, it's going to be awesome or, or, or whatever it's going to be. Um, I think sometimes people lose sight of the fact that, even though it's going to be like this big budget superhero movie that's going to make a ton of money and everyone's going to go see it, it's still a piece of art 
and you even if it's like like people aren't necessarily looking at it that way it still is no matter uh like no matter what it's it's still a piece of art and you can like put it together a certain way or you can frame a shot this way and it means something and all these decisions that are made will come together to make this piece of art and i think that that gets lost sometimes so i think this this assignment is good and then looking at movies this way is, is a very good thing because it can bring us back to like the art aspect of of things and um let get let, gives us a chance to appreciate things that we won't always pick up on that may or may not be super important but can still have like a big impact on the story even if people don't necessarily notice it right away or realize it um that that's why i really think that this assignment was like really cool and uh and why it was important wow cool i was gonna meme you at one point <laughs> and then you just kept talking and i was like this is a really good point because you were talking about the <laughs> avengers and how someone wouldn't go for i'm literally just saying pointless things now but <laughs> you're talking about the, how <laughs> the avengers no one would go um for for the cinematography and the great the great technical achievement and I was gonna say speak for yourself bro but then <laughs> um, it just kept going and then now my joke makes no sense and it does not land but <laughs> I believe we are out of time folks this has been oh, no. around the craft table a Why? podcast about movies dun, dun. by filmmakers dun, dun. featuring other memes. Hey. Nice. Wow. Hey, LMAO. <laughs> all right. Hey. Well, thank you all for joining us today. I know this was a long episode, but hopefully um, you guys enjoyed it. I know we did. Um, and writing these very long essays. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you can. Um, uh, why don't we tell everybody where they can find us? Um, I know uh, just our regular guests' um, handles are going to be in the description, but Sam, can you tell um, everybody where they can find you if they want to like, if they want to like see any of your stuff or, I don't know, social media? I don't have anything. Good for you. <laughs> I'm so I appreciate that. I'm That's so sorry. No, because I was I was thinking. Oh, actually, I have a Vimeo. Perfect. Oh, what's your Vimeo? Uh, it's just my name, Sam Kahatul. So okay. last name C A. H-A-T-O-L. I don't have anything big there yet, but one of these days I would like to try making some things of my own, particularly in sound design. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, cool. and, and, and Sam, yeah, you're, you're, you're interested in the sound design stuff um, with filmmaking, and that is, like, very, very good because there aren't a lot of people that are, like, that's their main passion, so, like, that's awesome to have you around and as a resource for us for us directors and, and editors of the like. Yeah. Well, why are you laughing at me today? <laughs> I, I don't know. This is the way you said that. Us directors I'm trying to be a formal and editors host and the like. person. Hostess. <laughs> Alright, anyways. Thanks know. so much, guys. Um, and yeah, you can find us around the craft table at uh, on social media at ATCT Show. I believe that's the same on all social media and uh, we will see you next Monday. Bye. 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 Hey, it's Miles from the Around the Craft Table team and you just heard episode six. 
Paper Cut. This week's episode was directed, executive produced, and moderated by Miranda Moros. It was executive produced and edited by myself, Miles A. Taylor. It featured myself, Miranda, our regular host and contributor, Will Klippenstein, and our special guest for this week, Sam Cahatol. This week's music was done by DJ Quads and Our Music Box, specifically by J-Man over there. Links to their music will be in the show notes. We hope you stick around for next week's episode.